WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Parents are always trying to understand how their baby is feeling, especially if they have negative feelings such as anxiety or if they're scared. However, babies can't talk yet and we can't exactly read their mind. Today we're here to talk to Samantha Finkbeiner about her research on how she monitors the movement of infants to assess their anxiety levels. Samantha, can you please tell us a little bit more about your research? Hi. What I've been working on is developing a methodology in order to get a program called Deep Lab Cut to automatically track the movement of infants and their specific body parts in order to kind of assess their reactivity to certain behavioral assessments that they were given. And that kind of gives us an idea of their anxiety levels. Thanks for joining us this morning, Sam. Thanks for having me. This will actually be the first interview that we've had where anybody is studying babies or infants. I can't imagine working with babies is an easy task. How do you assess what they're feeling besides the obvious crying, and what are different cues that can signal to these different feelings? We have some raters back at UNC at Chapel Hill, and they have an expert reader there who actually went through all of the videos encoded for that. But a couple of examples of like anxiety behaviors, one is called the escape behavior, where for the behavioral assessment, the child's placed in a high chair and the child tries to get away from the person who's wearing a mask. And so that's a really high anxiety response. And so it's basically that and crying, looking back at their mom for comfort. Those are kind of like the main cues that we are looking for in this study to tell if the infant has anxiety or not. How do you even begin this kind of study and then get permission from the parents to do it? Because I would imagine that no parent wants to willingly put their child in a stressful situation. As far as I understand, the cohort of children that we found were actually there to be assessed for like infant anxiety and to track that later in life. So it wasn't really very hard to find people who were willing to, because for another part of our study, we're doing fecal transplants and stuff like that. So it wasn't really hard to find people for that. For the actual portion of the assessments where we're scaring babies, it was a little bit harder to find some because they do react very heavily, but we had to get a lot of regulations in place in order to make sure that we weren't causing them too much distress. And the parents were in the room the entire time during the assessment that I'm working on, and they were allowed to stop the assessment whenever they wanted, whenever they felt like their infant couldn't take it anymore, basically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I would imagine that the parents would want to be in there while this kind of experiment is taking place. That has me thinking about how you're able to actually measure what the levels of distress are in that baby. Do you use an EEG kind of headset where you're able to measure the brain waves, or are you using more physical cues to actually measure that distress? We are actually using more like physical cues. So that's the portion of the project that I am in charge of. We use a program to basically track the exact motions of most of the major facial features and like shoulders to tell where this infant is looking and like how they're reacting. So like we can tell when they scream, which is really upsetting, but it's really good information because we know exactly how like distressed they are rather than using like an EKG where it's like more wires. And that's probably a little bit too stimulating for a one-year-old. So we use it basically by like physical cues, and then it's gone over by an expert rater who has lots of experience with infants with anxiety. This program that you're using, can you explain more about it? 
for example, have they already established this with adults or are they using it for the first time with babies? The program Deep Lab Cut that I'm using, it has been used on adults. But the problem that we found when trying to use it on infants without training it already is that it made their limbs really long. So imagine a baby with its short little arms and hands, but the video tracker tried to track it out the length of like a grown adult. So it kind of gave us a little bit of issues when like they would turn away or try to get away and they grab the high chair that they're in, they would grab it and it would make the hand go basically like halfway down the high chair which is obviously not where the hand would actually be, but it has been used on adults, but never on infants before. And so I'm basically just like calibrating it to work better on infants. Well, that definitely provides some nightmare fuel for Halloween coming up. I can't imagine really what a baby with human arms or legs would look like. That must make your job pretty difficult. But how do you do the calibration to actually change those dimensions so that the program recognizes that it's working with infants and not adults? So I'm actually in that process right now. What we first did was we had a bunch of frames from about six videos, and we went through and hand-labeled every single frame from these videos. For example, we used markers for the eyes, the ears, the nose, the chin, the shoulders, and so it was painstaking. And we went through six videos, and we got at least 100 annotations for each body part which means I had to go through about 500 frames for each video and hand label all of these separate body parts. And then what we use those labels for is we take those labels and we run it through a neural network and it trains that neural network to understand where those body parts actually are. We've mentioned neural networks in our computational interviews, but can you explain what you mean in this aspect? The neural network is actually embedded in the program Deep Lab Cut. It's really well calibrated for animals, for example, like rats. It picks up on those body parts really easily, but it's not that well programmed for infants. So that's kind of why we have to go back through and retrain the network to let it basically know what it's doing. It sounds like it's a pretty complicated program to work with, but I'm glad that you're able to start working through the process of calibrating it using these different markers. Since it's already near Halloween time, could you tell us a little bit about how you're scaring the babies? Yeah, we actually show them a set of four Halloween masks. We use an apple, a horse, a chimpanzee, and an alien. And so what we have these research assistants do is they walk into the room and the mask is presented to the child. Sometimes the kid starts screaming automatically, and then sometimes the kid doesn't respond at all. Then the research assistant says their name three times and then goes behind a curtain and changes masks. Yeah, it's quite a wide variety of different masks you're working with. And I kind of feel bad for the babies that are just freaking out right away from seeing the masks. But in the name of science, of course. Something that you said piqued my interest, however. Why does the research assistant say their name three times? Does it help the baby remember who the person is when they put on a different mask? Or is it for another different reason? Yeah, the research assistant says their name three times just to make sure that the baby actually looks at them. And like I said before, the mom is like in the room with them. So we want to make sure that the infant's like not turned around looking at mom when the mask comes out. So it kind of helps to like get the baby's attention on the individual who's actually wearing the mask. Do you feel like having the mom in the room creates some kind of bias towards the datum? For example, if you're looking at motion cues as to where the baby's looking, if they're always looking at their mother, does that create bias on the data? 
I would say yes, it does. But as far as I know from the data that I've gone through, we've not had any infants that just stare straight at mom. They usually look at mom for comfort when they are having the high levels of distress. So we don't really think that it alters it at all. Actually, the behavioral assessment we're using is from, it's called the locomotive lab tab behavioral assessments, and it's the masks portion of that. And so we kind of have adapted it a little bit, but in that one, they have the mom in the room as well. So we think that it's pretty unbiased, at least. Something that we haven't addressed in this interview yet is what is the age range for the subjects that you're looking at? The infants that we're using in this study range from about six months old to about a year old. It kind of varies a little bit, but that's the general age range that we're looking at. And the reason we're looking at that age range is because when the fear reactivity starts to develop in infants, and we're trying to catch earlier onset like anxiety disorders, and that's kind of the main overall goal of the study. What do you mean when you say fear reactivity develops in the infants around that time? Does that mean that we're not born with fear and that it's developing in a certain region of our brain? When we're born, our brain is not fully developed yet. And so the fear reactivity kind of starts developing around six to eight months of age. And the main reason we test in that around the six to one year range is because it is when that kind of process is growing the most. And so it's more easy to detect if there are more, I don't want to say outrageous responses, but more like extra responses to these masks. Because some of the kids freak out and scream and can only get out like two masks, but some other kids just look at all four masks and are completely unfazed. It never even occurred to me that people could develop this kind of fear response or reactivity that you had described earlier in the interview. Where does that fear response originate from in terms of the anatomy of the brain? Well, since these infants are visually seeing a mask, first it starts on the occipital lobe, which is where our sight is translated. And then it goes to the amygdala, which is really like the main center for fear and like aggression and those more like fight or flight responses. That's more the area that we're studying. That makes a lot of sense. When Danny was asking that question, I had a feeling the amygdala had an influence in this because of the fight or flight response. What do you hope to gain from this data and how do you think this project can be used in the future? The overarching goal of this project is to be able to automate the process of assessing infant fear reactivity. But the main objective for me is to actually get deep lab cut to accurately track these infants and make sure that they don't have adult body limbs and stuff like that. Well, it's needless to say that this kind of work is definitely really difficult to perform, especially when you're constantly watching videos of screaming children all the time. I have to ask, is this your first research project and how has this experience been for you? Yes, this is my first research experience, and I've been so blessed to have been put into like the best lab I could have asked for. I'm actually the lead on this project, which is in itself exciting, but I'm also finishing up my undergraduate schooling. I'm very excited about it, and I got really lucky to have the best lab in the world and the best PI in the world, Dr. Rebecca Nickmeyer. Shout out to her for taking a chance on me, but it's really just been like the greatest thing I could ask for. It honestly is just really the idea that I'm going to be a research scientist forever. Oh, nice. You're over in IQ with Dr. Nickmeyer. Do you want to continue research after your undergraduate degree and go into graduate school, or are you going to take your knowledge to something like industry? So I'm currently planning on going to graduate school and pursuing my PhD, either in biomedical engineering or neuroscience. Kind of depends on 
what programs I get into, but I do plan on going to graduate school, but I am going to actually shift away from babies and I'm going to study neurodegenerative disorders. So I'm going from newborns basically to the elderly, which is really interesting to me. Nice. So it sounds like then you'll be able to have a wide range of expertise working with different age groups. It'd be really cool if you're able to translate the work that you're doing right now into maybe something like dementia that derives from Alzheimer's for elderly people. Thank you for joining us this morning again, Sam, to talk to us about your very impactful work and good luck with the rest of your undergraduate career. Thanks. It'll be a little bit different this year, especially with our current circumstances, but I really appreciate it and good luck to you guys. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.